0: Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Supporters of the Indian Child Welfare Act are concerned about the law's future, as a key decision is in the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court. While we wait for the legal decision, we're taking time to look at how the law has touched the lives of people. For more than 40 years, the law has ensured Native children were kept in their Native families whenever possible. We'll talk to some of those families who are able to preserve their connections among themselves and their cultures because of an act of Congress. We're back right after the news.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Food shortages and higher costs were among challenges experienced in rural Alaska during the pandemic. Old Harbor on Kodiak Island had its community bison herd and gardens to fall back on. These are part of efforts to make food more available and affordable. The Old Harbor Alliance, a group which includes the tribe, the city, and the village's native corporation, bought the bison in 2017 from a rancher on the other side of Kodiak who had bears preying on the herd. The bison were barged to Kalitic Island, a protected space just across from Old Harbor. A lot has happened since the 40 animals were brought to the island. The Alliance recently built a processing plant to butcher surplus animals. Old Harbor freezers are now full of bison meat distributed to the community with priority to elders. Melissa Byrne-Sabota, who manages the herd, says it's taught the community an important lesson.
2: Anything's possible. I mean, this was kind of a pie-in-the-sky dream that I've heard our leadership talking about since the early 2000s. And they kept on pushing for it,
1: and we made it happen. The Alliance took a big step in 2020 when they brought three bulls from the Fort Peck Indian Reservation in Montana to improve the herd's diversity. The bison, which were surplus animals from Yellowstone National Park, had to travel in trucks, airplanes, and barges to reach their final destination.
2: They've got their little harems and They've been there for about three years, so we definitely have their offspring out on the landscape already.
1: As the herd continues to grow, the bison have fed Old Harbor Spirit with hunts that bring the community together. The Old Harbor Alliance's long-range goal is to use surplus animals to grow the community's cash economy through visitor hunting permits and the sale of meat. Any profits will be used to support the meat processing plant and community gardens, as well as cultural programs which teach children about Alutic language and heritage. Tidge a Michigan tribe has been awarded a $100,000 federal grant to study creating its own power utility. Mark Richardson has more.
3: The Little River Band of Ottawa Indians will use tribal energy capacity grant funding from the Bureau of Indian Affairs to perform a tribal utility authority feasibility study. Eugene Magnuson is the executive director of the tribe's economic development arm, Little River Holdings. He says the tribe sees operating a power utility as a way to exercise its independence, diversify its holdings control its energy future and reduce costs.
0: Energy sovereignty, I think, is the
4: next arena that tribes are starting to look at. And one of the ways is going through solar, wind, and all those technologies that are available for tribes to get into.
3: There are currently more than 30 tribal utility authorities across the country, including the Saginaw Chippewa Indian Tribe of Michigan. The Little River Band was among 18 tribal entities funded during the Bureau of Indian Affairs' January round of grant awards. The tribe is located in Manassee County in the northwest part of Michigan's lower peninsula. The tribe's main income enterprise is the Little River Casino Resort north of the reservation. Magnuson says electricity to operate a casino can be costly. The
5: tribal utility entity was created to
4: actually wheel power off the grid. And because of the tribal
3: sovereignty, we could procure the electricity off from the grid at wholesale Magnuson says tribal leaders have not yet set a deadline to complete the study. I'm Mark Richardson.
1: A group of Apache people and their allies are headed back to federal court in efforts to protect the sacred site Oak Flat in Arizona from mining. On Tuesday, the Ninth Circuit will hear arguments in Apache Stronghold versus United States after the court decided last fall to hear the case in front of a full panel of 11 judges. The hearing is taking place in Pasadena, California, and will be live-streamed on the court's YouTube channel. I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
0: National Native News is produced by Kowalik Broadcast Corporation,
5: with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for the menu comes from Spirit Mountain Roasting Company, a small-batch specialty coffee roaster located on the Fort Yuma Quetsan Reservation. Information and online ordering at spiritmountainroasting.com news. Support by the Gathering of Nations Pow Wow, a live event taking place April 27th, 28th, and 29th on the Powwow Grounds of Expo New Mexico, featuring song, dance, trader's market, horse parade, and more. Tickets available at GatheringOfNations.com and at the gates.
0: Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Supporters of the Indian Child Welfare Act refer to it as the gold standard of child welfare policy. It was originally adopted in 1978 to halt the removal of Native children from their families and tribal cultures. The law is now facing its most serious threat. The legal arguments are complex, but the challenge is basically over whether the law discriminates on the basis of race instead of upholding sovereign status. Not to be lost in the argument is the effect ICWA has on people, children, parents, and extended families. Today we'll talk to people with stories that reveal ICWA's human side, those whose lives would be significantly different without ICWA, and at least one perspective on the difference ICWA would have made had it been adopted earlier. We want to hear from you too. What does the Indian Child Welfare Act mean to you? Is it a force in your family story? Join our conversation by calling in today at one 800 that's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Speaking with us now from Poplar, Montana is Adrienne Ricker. She is a research associate at Johns Hopkins School for Nursing and an enrolled member of the Fort Peck, Assiniboine and Sioux tribes. Adrienne, welcome to Native America Calling.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Joining us from Ohio is Mary Annette Pember. She is a national correspondent for ICT and she is Red Cliff Ojibwe. Welcome to Native America Calling as well, Mary.
4: Bonjour, thanks for having me.
0: And joining us from Boston, Massachusetts is Julia Lurie. She is a journalist at Mother Jones. Julia, thanks for joining us on Native America Calling as well.
6: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I'd like to begin with you, Adrienne, and you have a personal story that is related to Indian Child Welfare Act. Can you talk about adopting your nephew?
2: Yeah, yep. Um, so so I guess I would start back with just sort of how this all came about, and and I want to preface by saying that sharing his story is personal, and also I acknowledge there's a lot of, like, hurt with his story, right? Anytime there's a forced removal from from biological parents, is There's, uh, you know, trauma that comes with that. And so um, it was July of 2018, I received a phone call from um, CFS, our our local BIA CFS, and let us know that um, our nephews were um, going to be removed. And we were sort of the last stop for them uh, amongst the families. Um, because because it was a because Indian Child Welfare Act was involved uh, we were able to do some kinship placement for them and so my husband and I um, immediately well not immediately I think there you know there's a couple different things you have to consider when 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 doing that but we felt like it was the best thing to do for them and so um, we took my my nephew and his brother in at that time and we really tried to work proactively with uh, with the family to to try to get the children back in the home. Um, you know, opened our home to, to having dinners and doing everything we could to help support them. Um, but um, that didn't work out in the long term. They were reunited briefly and then placed, um, the youngest nephew was placed back with us. And then the older siblings were actually placed with my husband's cousin who lives in the next town over. Um, and in that process was difficult but it was important for us because uh, we wanted him to stay close to uh, his family and kinship systems and um, and also wanted to really have going into this we wanted to try to have um, as much of a protective and and positive standpoint in it and so throughout the years um, his parents weren't able to to kind of do what they needed to do to get them back and so we kind of went through the next phase of of trying to adopt him more or less to make sure that um he was sort of taken care of there in case uh anything were to happen to us but throughout this whole process we've allowed him to really guide what he wanted to refer us to so In our kinship systems, you know, aunties and uncles are mothers and fathers, too. And so we never Mm -hmm. forced a term on us. Um, He called me auntie for the longest time and I was pregnant when we took him in. He was only 14 months old and um, I was auntie and his uncle was uncle. And um, so my baby was born and my baby actually called us auntie and uncle, too, because he heard it so much (laughs) from our nephew. (laughs) And, um, and then, you know, like, over time, he wanted to call us mom and dad, but also, like, we're very open, you know, and he, he when he gets to, he gets to see his mom and dad, and we just acknowledge, like, you have two moms, you have two dads, you know, like, so, um, and then he, so it's, it's been an interesting process for us to really kind of um, use positive language and connection and use our culture sort of as the baseline for that for him um you know talk about like it's normal like this is normal in our families to have multiple moms and multiple dads and that you know we talk about how his mom grew him in her stomach and then you know like we helped her mom his his mom and dad take care of them when they needed help and um that they still love him and um you know and so we try to really um infiltrate like that positivity and the cultural aspect of his upbringing and so him and my my youngest son are, they're uh, 18 months apart. And so they always have these conversations like, oh, yeah, I grew in mom's belly. And then, you know, our, our nephew now son, you know, talks about growing in his other mom's belly. And um, so it's been a, like a long road. Um, and, but what's been so beautiful about it is because of Iqua, you know, we still have connection to him and also have connection to his siblings. And I can't even imagine what life would be like without having access to him or him knowing who he comes from or, or the families he comes from. Um, because mm-hmm. that's just so important to, to who he is. And we, we follow ceremonies and that's very much a part of his life. He calls sweat hot haya <laughs> So
1: very <they're
2: like>, late, <laughs> him and my youngest son, they like going to hot hayas and, Um, But And he also maintains his original name because um, that was my husband and his brother's mom's last name. And so, um, you know, we we, even though he's fully adopted by us, like we still acknowledge his original name. Um, And if he when he gets older, if he wants to change his last name, that's fine. But we're definitely trying to keep intact his identity of who he comes from. And, and also like how we connect in that story and allow him to kind of navigate that. But Iqwa has really been the guiding force for us to be able to, to do that for
0: him. So this is a wonderful story, Adrienne. So this was almost five uh, five years ago in July of 2018, and he was just a baby when you adopted your son. So he's about six years old now?
2: Yep, he turns six next month, and he's in kindergarten, and, um, yeah, he's just a big boy now. So it's kind of crazy to think back how much life has changed since then. And, um, yeah, and, like, I was pregnant at the time, and now, like, my youngest son and him are, you know, so close because they've been together, like, all of my youngest son's life. So that's
0: that's also another uh, and how many kids do you have total now?
2: So um, we have so we have three biological children plus John and then also we help take care of a, a younger cousin of mine who who needed um he needed uh, somewhere to stay after um, something had happened with his grandma. so um, we kind of share in that responsibility with my with my cousins um, so so we have five boys in our home now three biological okay. and an extended family plus um, john who we is now adopted as our son but has been our son since we've taken him in
0: sure sure well adrian one of the main arguments from supporters of icwa is to keep children grounded in their culture and i know that there is a connection there between culture and also, just from a medical perspective, can you talk about that, the importance of Native children keeping their culture and how that actually impacts their health, their physical health?
2: Right. Yeah. So, you know, interestingly enough, I think a lot of my, my background in public health and, and working in research on my reservation over the last 12 years has really also, like, formulated a lot of my response in this personal uh, journey with John um and, and what that came down to is you know we have all of these societal ills that plague all of our reservations you know including suicide drug abuse alcohol addiction um just just like everything that that we are facing with and we were studying all these things on the reservation and we thought they were all in silos right so we thought this was this issue, this was this issue. And we understood the historical trauma and intergenerational trauma, but we didn't understand that that was interlaced between all of it. So at the core of all these things was trauma, right? Whether it's our own trauma, the intergenerational trauma passed on from our families or the historical trauma of boarding schools, forced relocation, um, all the attempted um, eradication of our people. And, And so, What we also saw was, you know, we had a research project with Dr. Teresa Brocki at the time, who we're now working with, again, that's who I work with at Johns Hopkins University, and we discovered, yeah, all these these terrible things happen and these are why they're happening, but also that culture is a protective factor. So individuals who um, might have like the same experiences or things kind of that are stacking up against them, if they had access to culture, language, and they had strong self identity, then they were more apt to be able to kind of overcome those things in life, and and that that has been honestly too a really um, eye opening thing for me and my husband as we navigate you know sort of our own experiences of trauma, and and trying to overcome them um, and working inside our communities. Um, so that. Um, that reconnection to culture and language and and our identity of our kinship systems and family systems you know we're okay. we're seeing like that adrian i'm sorry
0: we're gonna to have to take a short break but i definitely want to let you continue when we come back the show today as personal stories uh from native families regarding Iqua. we'll be right back after this break Islam provides a refuge for a small but growing number of Native Americans. Native observance of Islam is a mostly modern trend, but there are historical ties. And now a new project paints personal portraits of Native Muslims and tracks the joys and tests of their faith. On the eve of the holy month of Ramadan, we'll hear more about it in the next Native America Calling.
4: If you are age 45 years or older, it may be time to talk with a healthcare professional about colon cancer screening. Medicare, Medicaid, and the Marketplace have you covered. For more information, visit healthcare.gov or call 800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services.
0: Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're hearing personal accounts related to the Indian Child Welfare Act. If you have anything you'd like to share about how ICWA has affected your life, or if you have a comment or question for any of our guests today, please call us 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Adrienne Ricker uh, is an enrolled member of the Fort Peck Assiniboine and Sioux Tribe. She's up in Poplar, Montana. And she and her husband adopted a, a young nephew. And Adrienne, uh, before break, you were just giving us such a wonderful overview of of this whole story. And I know that there is there's privacy here, and I know that you know you're not comfortable sharing everything about uh, your family story and your your son. But I would like to ask you: Had you and your husband not stepped up and, and been parental figures in this young boy's life? Um, where do you think he'd be right now?
2: I don't know. I think when I when I ponder that question, I I see so many of our. When you go to like neighboring off reservation communities, you see quite a few uh, children from our home community that you know have been placed in foster homes over there, and you know you. I think. When I see them, I see that they're healthy and they look good, but there is also this look that I get from them where it's like they see people like them. And you see that, like, you see that look in their eye, like, man, they look like me. I want, you know, like there's that instant connection. And, and so when I think about where what that would look like for us, I just know that it would be so hard to be able to reach him or we'd, we'd be wondering what he looked like, what he's doing now, how old he is. Um, and then also wondering if there's people around him that make sense to him, that look like him. Because in, at the end of the day, that really matters. Like representation and that connection matters to our people. And, um, and having that... In having that representation daily in your life is important, and I think, in, especially as we're trying to parent and and take care of our children, I think having having the ability to connect and have models in your life that you can emulate is really important. So, um, I I think I would just be still like worried about his well being and how he is and who he is, you know. And so I'm just really thankful to Creator that we we kind of we get that opportunity to see him in his everyday life and watch him grow up and be there for him.
0: Adrian, like, like I mentioned earlier, this story is so inspiring and please stay on the line. I do have some more questions for you, but I, I want to move into our other guests on the line as well. Listeners, uh if this story that you're hearing today from Adrian Ricker, if it sounds familiar or if it inspires you the way it's inspiring me right now, give us a call. Let us know. Tell us how it moves you. one 800 996 2848 number again 1-800-996-2848 our phone lines are open our next guest again is Mary Annette Pember Uh, Mary you also have a personal ICWA story and and you wrote about it can you share an overview of your story and how it affected your family
4: sure and I'm I'm so glad you're doing this this is something that um, has been overlooked I'm not really sure why maybe neither. Folks are reluctant to share, but it's extremely important. Yeah, I'm a journalist, and I have written about ICWA extensively. Um, and some of what motivated me was, in, was uh, um, the kind of research I had to do in adopting our son. Well, I just realized we—he uh, came to us 18 years ago this month, and he was seven months old. Hmm. Uh, his name is Danny. Um, I had—I'll just give, try to try to. Um, try to sort of uh, uh, make it a little briefer um, the story people can can get online and look at the story as well but we were seven years before that before we adopted Danny we were looking at adoption and um, we we're trying to have a child of our own and um, my tribe contacted me about a little girl that was available and actually it's Dan's uh, elder sister his half sister And she was uh, even though we're from um, my tribe is um, in Wisconsin, uh, her mother and family had located up to the state of Washington and so he was uh, she was rather living with a non native family who had uh, fostered and adopted her since birth birth mother. is, um, if she's still living, we haven't been able to maintain contact with her, but um, she uh, has been a heroin addict and struggled a great deal in her life. She's kind of what my mom would call a shirt tail cousin of ours. So we are related to her. But at any rate, I had some business out in the Seattle area, which is where she was at the time. And so I decided, well, I'll just go drop in and and I'll see, you know, uh, what's going on with this little girl. She was two years old. So I spent the afternoon with her and she was with this non-native family. um, And I just, you know, she—you could see the, that the little girl loved the woman, and she loved her family. She loved. There were some other adopted kids there, and I just—I got that feeling so strongly. You know, she was holding the holding uh, the—I don't want to say the girl's name because I don't think the family would really want me to even um, sort of disclose that. I'll just call her L. The mother was holding L, and L was patting the mother on the shoulder. And I'm like, you know, you can't fake that. This little girl loved mm-hmm. her. And, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm, some people might disagree with me, but I called the tribe up and I said, you know, if you guys are hell-bent on intervening, you, know, you absolutely should. But I just can't, I just somehow, I can't in my heart, I can't be a part, I can't take her away, you know. So um, that happened, and then several years later, somewhere, something moved me to call the ICWA office up in Redcliffe. And um, it was inquiring, you know, about the little girl and so on, and, and they said, oh, you know, um, um, the, the girl, the woman, the mother had another child, had a little boy. I said, oh, well, is that same family taking him? And they said, yes. And then I got to thinking, oh, that's unusual because those people are older. And um, they really, they seem like they kind of had they had a pretty full plate. So I, I still had their contact information, and I contacted them. And they were like, oh, my gosh, we've been waiting for you to call us. We were so overwhelmed, and Danny was withdrawing from, from um, narcotics. And it was we just couldn't care for him. We couldn't give him the care that he needed. And birth mother had um, she had him and she left him at the hospital. She was running and, and she, she what was, uh, you know, I think impressive about her is she did make her way back to a community that knew her. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean that was kind of very much an act of love, I think, on her part. So what was good is that this foster mother was able to tell me where he was. And I don't know something got into me and I just could not let it alone until I tracked him down and and anybody who knows me knows i am like i go into this journalism mother and i just became relentless mama bear and i found him because <laughs> uh he was staying with um with a foster mother a single mother um and i don't you know want to i'm not making any judgments about this woman um but i think there were some she, she um had some some issues, and she may not have been as mentally fit as she could have been. She was a very um, involved in a very far-right um, Christian religious uh, group and really felt that she was directed by God to keep Danny. And, you know, I, it just did not feel like a good place for him. It turned out that the welfare uh, workers of the county at the time had never even met him. They just placed him with this woman. So mm-hmm. I just basically pestered everybody—my equal worker, you know, the tribal judge, people out in the state of Washington—until, you know, until they did something. And so we uh, flew out to um, to Seattle, and. Um, they did over the. They basically designated us as a foster family, and uh, the tribe just did it over the phone and designated us as a foster family, and they gave him to us, and we flew him back home, and he's been here ever since. And he's wow. just the light. Of, he is the light of my life.
0: <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like. Uh, I, I have so many questions here. So, um, and is Danny able to keep in touch with his biological sister? Then, it's, is she still in Washington?
4: We do try to do that um, we have um, they are also um, I think you know have a, a, a really just a preference that is not really very open to to other stuff but we always try to just you know I keep it very very open you know I always reach out and you know like I made her a jingle dress and I sent her rice every year and we do we try to be available to her um, and she's an adult now so um, I'm always have hopes that she will she'll want to know more about who she is um, and we did I somehow out of nowhere I was able I'm always sort of, you know, kind of snicking around social media and so on. And I located his birth mother. This is like about three years ago. And actually I had it worked out perfectly. I had some business in that part of the country and, and Dan went out with me and the birth mother agreed to meet us. We met at a Denny's alongside the freeway. And you could she was she was on the methadone program and she was really struggling to do better. And you know, it was like it was probably as perfect as it could have been she um she apologized to him and she thanked me Mm. and you know she kind of fell off the face of the earth again and we haven't been able to maintain contact with her but and it's been hard for him you know because i think we all at the end of the day everybody wants to think my mother would have cared enough about me to keep me and even despite all of the factual information we can know about that and as much as we might understand that, I think that is some visceral thing that we all have. You know, so we yeah. just, I, whatever he asks me, we always tell him that has been our role. And I kept everything, like the nurses were so wonderful to him. And he was um, in um, in the neonatal unit and withdrawing. I mean, And I just kept, every, and I kept all the stuff from this uh, initial uh, foster mother, even though it was a little bit misguided. But I really think he should know everything that has gone on. So it has been hard for him, Um, and you know he does he does have a a pretty significant developmental delay, and he's recently been going through a very rough patch and uh, is hospitalized currently. But he's going to be getting out. But you know the first thing he wanted to do, he says, "I want to go to ceremony. I want to go home." And if we had not provided that for him, I don't think he would have known to ask for it i'm so uh-huh. sorry to be emotional uh-huh. but oh, that, no
0: no no that's no that this we is have just
4: given, we have go ahead mary so he knows. he knows, I my my goal was that you know really and also for his sister if she if she decides to reach out that they know where to go if you right. want to be with your people if he to know how to be a nishna nini to be a nishabe man, he knows where to go, and we 've always taken him to ceremony and we 've always involved him with our community and we 've tried to reach out to some of his to extended family um you know traditionally our people Ojibwe people. You know, before all of these various waves of assimilationist policies impacted our lives, in, you know, boarding schools being one discrete example, but you know, removal and of course the Dawes Act, the diminishment of our land and so on. For all of those things, you know, it had an impact on our lives. Ojibwe people, we we took care of our children. We took care of the quote unquote orphans. So this is our traditional way. This is what we do. So this is, you know, and this is the sort of thing that I tell him, you know, that we have always done that for our people. And, you know, I think what the really great thing is about it one, I think just, you know, how, how the incredible strength of, of native people, we're getting that back. We are getting that back, even though it can be a
0: fight. Hmm. Well, this is uh, just fascinating here, Mary. And, um, Have you heard of other families that that have been in similar situations such as yours, have reached out and and traveled multiple states to to take care of a a Native child, foster care, and then ultimately adopting like this? And then in a family that's been kind of split like this, you know, the biological sister still with the other family? You know, I...
6: Um, I,
4: I don't know, I could ask her if she wanted, would like to speak to you, but uh, she uh, also has, uh, I think, two children from Wisconsin that she has adopted. Her tribe is in, in Wisconsin, and I think they live in the D.C. area. So there's a number of us out there. And, you know, one of the things I, th- I whenever I tell people about our family's adoption story, you know, when, when I talked about the older sister, you know, that actually happens far more than people know. The only time the general public really gets to hear about the Indian Child Welfare Act are in these very few handful of cases in which a family, you know, raises a a dispute. You know, tribes routinely, when they say they intervene, that doesn't mean they take, you know, they take custody of the child. That just means they would like to be part of the process. Tribes frequently they frequently find in them, you know, they want to find in the best interest of the child. And that best interest often actually includes um, perhaps, uh, you know, a foster care um, uh, a placement or even an adoption placement with a non-native family. But tribes, you know, tribes often have limited resources and they simply can't afford, you know, to jet all over the country and, and uh, you know, and, and intervene on all of these children. So there are many cases in which kids, do, they are adopted by non-Native families. So I think that's okay. important and, that's
0: lost. Yeah. Yeah. And Mary, it's interesting because you, you mentioned uh, Danny's biological sister in this family who you said it was obvious there was love in that household. Even though it was a, a non-Native household, there was love, there was support. So uh it, it sounds like uh in some cases, Iqwa maybe isn't the solution for every Native child. And it does sound like there are situations when placing a Native child, in a non-native home is a viable solution. Is that correct?
4: Well, and again, you know, ICWA is not. It doesn't mean solely um, that the child or that the tribe intervenes and and takes custody of the child. It just means intervention. It means that the tribe is allowed to be at the table. That's really the core of the Indian Child Welfare Act. So there are many cases in which, you know, the best interest of the child is, you know, for for all kinds of reasons, for, you know, unfortunately for resource, you know, lack of resources and so on.
0: Okay. So, And Mary, I, okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Continue.
4: Well, I think, you know, they do, for instance, the place that um, the elder sister is in Washington, there's quite a few tribes around, the two Lelip tribes and so on. And so, you know, she would at least have, you know, I figured she would have some access to some tribes, and we have provided, you know, some connection. But I don't know. In retrospect, do I would I have still done the same? To be honest with you, I don't really know. I sometimes wonder if maybe that was the right decision. If we should have, you know, intervened. If we, I think, if we had, you know, the tribe would have supported us. But uh, it's difficult to to uh, to look back on one's decisions and see if they were right or not.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And 18 years ago this month, uh, you brought Danny home. So this is almost two decades at this point. So uh, another really, really fascinating story, a personal story about Iqwa and uh, how Its impact is on certain Native families, and uh, we're just learning a lot today, and not so much from the policy side. We're not talking about the legal aspects of the Indian Child Welfare Act and some of these recent threats. We're really just getting down to the grassroots level and talking to real families and real people who have been impacted, and we're hearing their stories. And anybody listening today, if you have a story as well regarding ICWA and how it's been impacted with your family, maybe you've adopted a child yourself or you're fostering a child or you're thinking about it, Give us a call. We'd love to hear what your take is on today's conversation. Our number here at Native America Calling is 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. We're going to talk more about some of these ICWA stories here just after this next break. We're going to learn a little bit more about how this law is impacting folks just on a personal level. Again, Just what does it mean for some of these families, for some of these children in the future Indian country? You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
5: Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications are accepted through May 31st at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash relations.
0: You're listening to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. We're hearing about the human side of ICWA, and there is still time to join the conversation. If you'd like to talk about how ICWA is important to you, our number to join the conversation, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I want to bring in our third guest on the show now, Julia Lurie. She's a journalist with Mother Jones. Julia, you wrote an article. It was titled, Forever Home about the obstacles one native grandmother had to go through to get custody of her granddaughter. What got you interested in this story?
6: So I, um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I cover child welfare um, at Mother Jones, and it's pretty rare that child welfare um, cases make it all the way to the Supreme Court. And um, I wanted to dive into some of the, the personal stories of the cases that had, had gone into that Supreme Court case. Um, So this this specific case um, involved a grandmother named Robin Bradshaw in Minneapolis, um, who had been one of the primary caretakers for her granddaughter um, for the first three years of her granddaughter's life. Um, And um, her granddaughter, in in court documents, goes by PS. So I'll just just refer to her as that. Um, And when PS's mom started struggling with drugs, the family who had all lived together, the grandmother and mother and granddaughter, um, they were evicted. And um, long story short, PS was put into um, the the child welfare system. She was picked up by CPS. And um, to me, one of the things that really stuck out about this case is that um, because of a series of procedural mix-ups, for the first two years that PS was in the state's custody, um, this did not qualify as an ICWA case um, even though even though her, her grandmother is an enrolled member of White Earth. and um, during those two years uh, the, the case was treated like any other county child welfare case. so PS ended up bouncing from foster home to foster home and um, was more and more distanced from her mother and her grand- and her grandmother. And um, eventually, PS landed in the home of a white couple um, who wanted to adopt PS. And um, then there was this very dramatic reversal two years in where ICWA suddenly did apply, um, White Earth got involved, and um, Robin Bradshaw, who had this entire time been fighting for her granddaughter and not understanding why it was that she didn't have custody of this girl that she had helped raise. Um, was, was eventually able to fight for custody and, um, and adopt her granddaughter. And I think why it really stuck out to me was just it's really rare that you see the impact of, of a law on a single family like this, um, that you see what happens when the law doesn't apply and then what happens when the law does apply. Um, and in this case, it was a really dramatic reversal. The county went from thinking that Robin Bradshaw was um, a threat and dangerous because of an of a old felony con- conviction to all of a sudden seeing her as a viable caretaker. Um, and I, I guess I just wanted to really go into detail on what that looked like and felt like for our family rather than like you said, um, just being at the high level policy analysis level. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, right. Um, um. And then what happens at the end of the article with regard to, to Robin Bradshaw and her granddaughter?
6: Sure. So Robin Bradshaw ended up um, being able to adopt P.S. Um, but I should say the—and and, and everything seems to be going well. P.S. is now um, in— I believe it's in fourth grade. Um, and I think that's been going smoothly. It's, it's a complicated situation now. PS was living with, um, the white couple named Danielle and Jason Clifford for almost two years and, um, really developed an attachment to, to them and they to her. And so, you know, when, when she was placed back with Robin, she was, um, at some level she had been you know, asking to be placed back with her mother and her grand and her grandmother for a long, long time. Um, mm-hmm. But when she was placed back with, with Robin, um, she started asking Robin, like, wait, why can't I see the Cliffords anymore? I, why, why do I have to not have a relationship with them at all? Like it just didn't compute to her that um, all of these adults couldn't be in her life together. And so Robin ended up having this really difficult decision of like, should I let my granddaughter have contact, um, with this foster family who really put up a fight who did not want Bradshaw to adopt PS. Um, but ultimately decided to let her granddaughter have contact with them because that's what her granddaughter wanted. And, and she wanted PS to be happy. So, um, so now, you know, they still have contact with the Clifford's and, um, PS will sometimes go stay with the Clifford's, but, um, she lives with Bradshaw. is adopted by Bradshaw, and um, and yeah, it's, it's really been quite a, a roller coaster ride for this family.
0: Okay, it well, it really does sound complex, Julia, and and it really makes us remember that at the heart of all these cases are, are these young children. And I can only imagine how confusing it would be to a young child, as you describe it, and and like you said, I mean you know, how come I can't have all these people in my life? How come I being almost probably feeling as though she has to to pick sides? And and I want to bring Adrienne Ricker back into the conversation because, Adrienne, you have a lot of experience uh, with with your son and just finding it. Sounds like just it, the key is finding that right balance between um, giving that child the freedom and flexibility to, to pursue these relationships that are meaningful, but also at the end of the day, you still have to be that parental figure. Um, What's what's your reaction to this story, Adrienne, as you listen to this this child there in Minneapolis and being with the the white non Native foster family, and then the grandmother, the Native grandmother?
2: Right. Um, yeah, I've heard of this story before, and uh, I think when when you go back to the end of it, where the grandma is able to reconnect and have custody of the child, but then also invites the foster family, or you know, to kind of be a part of the life. What it reminds me of is in our belief system, we're not stingy with our children. Um, We're not stingy with our family members and like we allow other people into their lives to kind of take on different roles because we understood like it does, it does take a whole village to raise a child. And so to me that kind of resonates, like I believe that children can be loved by people of all color and race, but the important part of ICWA is to try to maintain that connection of who they are and where they come from, because there is a special designation even as an indigenous person. Like, and not only is that like their root of who you are and, and what you carry inside of you, but also, you know, there's a distinction between like how we are, we have a, you know, like we're, we're citizens within another citizenship essentially. So that's important as well. Um, and that's important as their lineage you know, as they grow up, that they have connection, that their children have connection to that, too. So I just I, I'm i just like really moved by that grandmother's um, ability to kind of help her granddaughter navigate that world and also allow other people at the table who, you know, kind of almost took that away from her. But, you know, that as indigenous people, that's what we're taught. We're taught to, to not be stingy with our loved ones and to do what's right. best for them. All
0: mm-hmm. right. Uh, anybody listening today, if uh, you have a comment or any thoughts regarding this story here that occurred in Minnesota or any of these other ICWA personal stories, our phone lines are still open. There is still time. You can get a call in 1-800-996-2848. And, um, Julia, I, w- I want to go back to you You know, in this article, and, and here you took this journey, and, and I'm sure you just learned a whole lot about ICWA and, and just how complex this law is and how it really unfolds with some of these families. And to you, does it shed any light on, on either the power or, or weakness of ICWA in terms of how the law is implemented?
6: Yeah, definitely. You know, I think one of the things that I found Really striking was how um, how differently the um, the different actors sort of reacted to to both Robin Bradshaw, the grandmother, as well as the foster parents. So um, you know, at the very outset of the case, for example, um, there was a woman named Barbara Reese who was appointed as the guardian ad litem to to this case so that basically meant that she was supposed to represent the the best interests and the needs of the girl yes and um so she she logged like hundreds of volunteer hours on this case over many years she would go and um meet with ps and meet with her foster parents and go meet with her therapists and teachers and everything and then go and present what she had learned to the court and um Barbara Reese was um, very adamant from the very, very beginning that Robin Bradshaw, because of her previous felony conviction, um, was not going to be a suitable caregiver, and that she should not be placed with her grandmother. And um, really maintained that stance all the way through to the very end of this case. And it was only once ICWA it once ICWA did apply that you had all sorts of other workers who were trained in ICWA who were able to also have eyes and ears on this case and observe PS and talk to her therapist and talk to her teachers and all of that and say, wait a second, actually things are going great with Robin Bradshaw and there's actually really good reason why she would be a great caregiver for her granddaughter. Um, and so you really see just how people with different perspectives Um, particularly people who are trained on ICWA and have a better understanding of the cultural components, um, Mm -hmm. are going to have often completely different (laughs) stances on on what is in the best interest of a child.
0: Right. And Julie, I want to ask you, what do you think was driving this bias uh, against uh, the grandmother as you describe it with this person who was, you know, making these decisions?
6: You know, I think it's all sorts of things. I think it's, there's, there's of course, I think, implicit racial bias and, and implicit socioeconomic bias. I also think that you know, child rearing is an enormously personal thing, obviously, and I think it's um, very natural for people, particularly people who have kids, to think this is, this is the best way to raise kids. I did it this way; it, it worked well for me. This is how people in my community do it, um, and so this is, this is the way, and to sort of unthinkingly apply those norms to other people and um mm-hmm. Barbara Reese the the guardian ad litem said something to this effect she said you know I know how to raise kids I've done it myself and this is not how um Robin Bradshaw is, is doing it and um so you obviously get into dangerous territory when when you're trying to apply the the rules and norms of <laughs> of one one person in one culture to another person in another culture um and and yet, even though that's a really simple principle to, to swallow, it is a, it's a problem in child welfare overall, where you have um, often white and middle and upper class decision makers, whether it's social workers or judges, making decisions for um, for families that are disproportionately black and brown and disproportionately poor.
0: hmm I want to go back to Mary Annette Pember and and Mary, I'm I'm just sitting here right now and I'm thinking about people listening to the show. And and I know there are a lot of native families out there who have thought about adopting a child, a native child or thought about being foster parents for a native child. I know my wife and I, we've thought about it before. And then it just seems like such a huge commitment. Uh, It seems like a huge risk on so many levels. What's your advice to anybody listening who's who's thought about this thinking about this and and just not sure if it's it's the right fit for their family?
4: yeah, that's a really good question. you know I think so many of us you know there's uh, regarding parenting, you know there are no guarantees about you know how you what your what kind of problems your childs are going to or you know what what they're going to demand from you, for instance, I have a biological child who's older than Danny. And she has some significant difficulties like autism related. And I think often it seems like I often hear from folks who are interested in adoption, particularly um, white families. They they really, they want that guarantee. You know, they want to get a kid that's going to be free of trouble, but you know, none of them are free of trouble and it doesn't matter if you birth them, you know, from your own body or if you, um, if they come from, not from your body, if they come from outside, you know, children are, you know, have parenting is just an enormous leap of faith. And you know, you're gonna make mistakes, you know, you're gonna um, you are going to do regrettable things, but um, I think if you have that commitment, you know, it's um it's it is uh, it's enriching beyond belief. But again, not for the faint of heart, you know. I don't know if that's uh, uh, a, a lot of advice, but that's really a that's <laughs> <advice>. <laughs>
0: Uh, it, it certainly is. And, and, and the other question I, I think would be interesting, and if you could comment, Mary, you know, if, you know, like if a child is from a different tribe, so even though it's a Native household, but it could be a, a vastly different tribe culturally, any thoughts as to how that can work with Native parents uh, adopting a child from, from a different tribal community than their own?
4: Yeah, I think some people have, have definitely done that. And I think just having that awareness, you know, because we have such a long history of that in our communities, you know, um, intertribally, tribally um, I think that people will, you know, people have an understanding of that. And I bet, you know, surely you will try to get your child, you know, um, connected to their, to their home community, where their birth parents are from. <clears throat> Fortunately, you know, Dan, as I said, is a is, uh, you know, kind of a cousin of mine, so that has been easy. But I think just having an awareness of, um, I think, of our our connection to the world, you know, to our worldview, um, that's, you know, very beneficial. And that's really what I think so many of our Native uh, children who are adopted out, that is what they hunger for at a very cellular level.
0: We've now reached the end of our hour. I do want to thank our guests today, Adrienne Ricker, Julia Lurie, and Mary Annette Pember for sharing personal stories and insights about the Indian Child Welfare Act and its impact on Native families. Join us again tomorrow as we speak with Native American Muslims about the intersection of Islam and Native culture. I'm Sean Spruce.
5: The 2023 Alaska Native Art Auction Gala is March 25th in Anchorage, Alaska. Please consider donating Native Art and help Kewanek Broadcast Corporation raise needed funds. Kowanic Broadcast Corporation's mission is to be the leader in bringing Native voices to Alaska and the nation. With your support, we're able to produce programs such as National Native News, Native America Calling, and more. Donor forms and more information about the auction and online bidding can be found at knba.org. This program is supported by AmeriCorps VISTA. You can kickstart your career by joining thousands of AmeriCorps members in the VISTA program serving to alleviate poverty. AmeriCorps members help organizations make change right in their own community. A service opportunity that fits your ambition can be found at americorps.gov VISTA today. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A.